commandment, the new commandment from John chapter 13 verses 31 to 38. So this morning we continue our series in the Gospel of John and we arrive at the, at the end of chapter 13. Let's just recall that John writes four chapters on what Jesus said to his disciples that night. So it was a very compact, very intense, very special moment that John records for us under the power of the Holy Spirit, under the inspiration of God. He wants to, he takes us there on this very special moment. And obviously if you add chapter 17, that makes it five chapters. But chapter 17, strictly speaking, is a prayer to God, even though it might have been prayed in front of his disciples. But we'll, we'll cross that bridge when we get there. It is Jesus' farewell address. Jesus has already given his disciples an example, a show and tell, if you like, of what it's like to be a servant by washing the feet of his disciples. This is what humility looks like, boys. This was followed by Another lesson, the lesson on betrayal, and that was the, ex- the exposure of Judas. Judas is then sent away with the instruction that he, what he was about to do, to do quickly. Why? Because there had to be a schedule, a godly schedule to follow, for Jesus will be crucified in less than 12 hours, he'll be hanging on a cross. The other guys didn't know that, but Jesus knew. Therefore, the agony was setting in, wasn't it? The intense, the distress in the hearts. And we spoke about that uh, a couple of weeks ago. Now, with Satan having entered, John tells us that Satan entered. Judas, he left the place where Jesus was with his disciples, where they had the meal together. And knowing all this, Jesus made a couple of surprising announcements regarding a new commandment and the prediction that one of his own, another of his own, would deny him. That was Peter. So let's uh, go to the first point we want to make this morning, and that is. The way to glory from verses 31 to 33. The way to glory. When he was gone, Jesus said, the Son of Man is glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. My children... I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now where I'm going, you cannot come. So there they are, 12 plus Jesus, a very special moment. And uh, some of the things that you want to say sometimes is interrupted because of who is in the room. And the moment that person leaves, you know what I'm talking about, so don't act so saintly here. Uh, 
as soon as that person goes, then we can get a little bit more intimate because there are some further issues, some deeper issues that need to be discussed. That person that needed to leave was Judas. And Jesus goes even deeper, as it were, to to leave them a lesson, to teach them something very important in these last few moments. It is a tender moment, isn't it? He was preparing them for some very difficult, unsettling things, some events that were about to happen very, very soon. And despite his efforts, despite the warnings that he gave them, the preparation, they still had very little idea, not much of an idea at all of what was going on. But that is okay. That is okay, isn't it? In our human frailty and the fact that we are mortal beings, we're not to know everything. And even when God tells us and prepares us and he warns us, he, we, we, still, we still don't know. But that's okay because Jesus knows, God knows. This is why he refers to them as his little children. It's like a parent teaching his kids. Now, I know you don't understand what I'm about to tell you, but soon you will and as you grow up and then the whole education, oh, that's what mum and dad were trying to tell me then about who to hang around with, about what to do, about what to not to do and so on and so forth. He refers to them as little children. I'm not little. I'm a grown boy. Little children, he calls them. And it's a, it's a beautiful term because even though this is the only time that word appears in, in the Gospel of John, John, who writes the epistle in his first epistle, he will use the same term, the same word that he uses here seven more times. His disciples are children. They are immature. Oh, I just wish you would grow up for once. Is that what he says to them? No. Little children. The love, the patience. Amazing, isn't it? Very dear to him. You know, how will they grow? How do children grow? How do we grow as as babes in Christ? And then, well... There's no easy way. It's, it's the growing pains. It's the trials. It's overcoming. It's the, 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 the battles that we, we go from one lesson to the next and to the next. That's how you mature. That's how you grow up in the Christian faith. If you give up after the first trial, after the first battle, and you just simply walk away, oh, it's too hard. I'm not going there anymore. Well, guess what happened? You stop growing. You still be needing milk instead of getting into the asado and the solid meat. The only way to gain maturity is through the many trials that await us, just as the many trials that will very soon await the disciples. And of course we know all about that in the book of Acts, don't we? 
One thing is certain, their present relationship with Jesus, which at this moment, at this time, was physical and if, if, if it was special, the fact that they had Jesus with him, they, to some extent they didn't know, they, they presumed that he was going to be around forever and, and that, that relationship will last. Uh, but that, all of that is, is, is about to change. Jesus had told them before, but they aren't able to, they're not able to understand and will not fully understand until after the crucifixion, until after the ascension, until after the Pentecost and the coming down of the Holy Spirit. Okay, boys? Here we go. This is what it's about. The time had come for Jesus to be glorified. How do we prepare for glory? Well, it's about to happen. The disciples had expected glory, but the glory which they sort of were looking forward to and the rest of the Jewish people were looking forward to was very different to the one that Jesus had in mind. Just like we would struggle today with our limited understanding of how things, how life, is supposed to work. We want to get to the glory, but definitely avoid the pain. For the world, glory is, especially sporting glory, which commentators love to go on about. And and somebody who has been standing on the podium a few times holding the trophy, for everybody to see, Oh, what a glorious team that was. Oh, what a glorious generation of football players. That's what we identify with glory. Raising a trophy. We struggle to look at glory by seeing someone beaten to a pulp and hanging on a cross. It doesn't look like glory at all, does it? but it is wrong to speak of the Lord's glory apart from his suffering. Can't do it. There are no shortcuts, no shortcuts to glory. His glory begins at the cross. It does not end there. He is glorified by his death. He's glorified in his burial. He's glorified in his resurrection. He's glorified in his ascension and by his sitting at the right hand of the Father. And there's more and more glory to come as Revelation tells us, isn't there? And if God, the Father, is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself. There's this interaction And the Holy Spirit, where is the Holy Spirit in all of this? The Holy Spirit is there, making Jesus real, making the sacrifice real. Without the Holy Spirit, Jesus would not be able to overcome all of the temptation. The Holy Spirit was there. The Holy Spirit is the one who raised Jesus from the dead, the Bible tells us. The... the, 
Our God, the three-in-one, Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit, all God, all working together for the redemption of man, but for the ultimate glory of the Godhead. And we are the beneficiaries of that. We cannot go. Imagine if, if those words had remained. Where I go now, you cannot come. Can you imagine just how disappointed that would be? I'm sorry, guys, but you missed out. Where will be our hope? Sorry, all tickets are sold. You know? Oh, uh-huh. really? But that's not the end of the story, is it? Thanks be to God. In, in order for that glory, for that great glory of God to materialise, Jesus would have to leave his disciples for a time, no longer with them physically to lead, to teach, to protect them, even feed them. How would they survive when he is gone? They need me. They need me. Parents tend to say, no, now it's time for them. And, and without the Lord's leadership, how would they carry on his work on earth as his disciples? Yes, as he ascends to heaven, as he ascends, just a few days later, the Holy Spirit descends on them in Pentecost. At this stage, they're not able to fully understand, but we have the privilege of looking back at how the story comes together. And the disciples might have assumed that Jesus was simply going to go somewhere else. Oh, he's going to the country. Oh, he's going for a holiday. He's having some time off, okay? Just leave him alone. He needs to work himself out. The shock was also that Jesus was going away and not taking them with him. What, you don't want us anymore? At least now they cannot come. The good news is that they will come later. They will come later. And yes, I have to go back to these days. The disciples struggle to understand the glory through the cross. Spare a thought for unbelievers. We've heard this story many times over. We take part in communion, which reinforces that. Today, the world, the people out there, they still see nothing glorious in the death of Jesus on a cross. To them, it is utter foolishness because they have not been convicted of their sin and guilt before a holy God. Why, why, why do we even need that, they say. Unbelievers will also struggle with the resurrection and the fact that Jesus was returning to heaven to be with his Father. In the days in which we live, my brothers and sisters, I have to once again clarify this so at least we get it. Heaven is a place for those who believe in and want to be with Jesus. Hell is a place for those who reject him in life and God will reject them in death. 
I hope that at the very least those of you who are here understand this and accept this sobering truth. Secondly, the way of love, verse 34. A new command I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. This is one of the, those passages of scripture that we learned from very early on, from Sunday school. It is sometimes called the 11th commandment. But how is it new when the idea to love our fellow man is, is, is already stated in the Old Testament? Um, we, we all know that there is a sense in which this new commandment of our Lord is not entirely new. The Old Testament law, Jesus said, is summed up in two commands, love God and love your neighbour as yourself. So how then is this commandment to love our fellow man new? Let's look at least four. There's possibly more reasons, but let's, let's look at least four ways in which it is new. Firstly, it is a command given by our Lord to the church. It is not a command given to Israel in general, it is given to his church. It is part of the new covenant. The new wine needs a new wineskin. In this sense, it is the first of the new commandments that our Lord will give to the church through his apostles. In that sense, it is new. Secondly, it is reciprocal in nature. This is emphasised by the words one another. This is what reciprocal means, which is repeated. It's actually repeated three times even here, one another. It means that it has to be a love, that it is to be shared mutually by all of Christ's disciples. It is a love for one another that will naturally bind them closely one to another. And of course it is the first of the many one another statements that we will hear about in the book of Acts and in the epistles. Many times this word one another will come over and over again. We are told to admonish one another. We don't like that. (coughs) We are to comfort one another. We like that. We are to care for one another. We are to pray for one another. We are to serve one another. And we are to forgive one another. I definitely don't like that one. No. I think it's easier to have root canal, isn't it? Now these and many one another commands teach us that what it means to love one another in the same way that Christ has loved us. And this is what he takes us to the third point. It is a higher standard. Thirdly, it is a higher standard. It is, in fact, the highest possible standard. 
the disciples were to love one another in the same way that Jesus had loved them. How on earth do you measure up to that? The love must not depend on the, the worthiness or otherwise of the ones whom you love. It must not even depend on the state of your feelings towards that person. Jesus didn't love his disciples because they were always lovable. He loved them despite all their faults and failures. Remember how the chapter starts? He was showing them the extent of his love and how he loved them to the end. Last uh, couple of weeks ago, we saw that Jesus loved Judas despite being troubled that he will deliberately go and, and, and make things and get paid to betray Jesus. And here in verse 38 of our passage, we, we now see that Jesus loved Peter despite knowing that he would deny him three times, three times in a moment of weakness. Therefore, the new commandment requires us to love fellow Christians who may have failed us or wronged us before and even to love those who we find very hard to love. This is hard. You know it and I know it, how hard, how difficult it is. Oh boy. Someone said, to dwell, with, to dwell above with saints we love, oh, that will be glory. But to dwell below with saints we know, well, that's another story. <laughs> Isn't it? Now, there is no promise there's no promise here that they will return the love that we offer them, that they will love us in kind back. Many times the love that we show might even turn, they could be betraying us or stabbing us in the back. And, and I can't promise you that that's not going to happen, Okay. So just best to leave it up to God. What the Bible does say is, as far as it depends on you, as, as long as it is up to you, live at peace with everybody. Lastly, it, it is new in its results. The love that we are commanded to have for one another is a love that results in self-denial. Christ loved us to the extent of being willing to die for us. In the same way we are to love our brethren in Christ enough to be willing listen to this enough to be willing to die for them if such should ever be, become necessary if, if ever a need arises 
That's what we are called to do. Now, John 3.16 says what? For God loved the world. Okay, so that is that vertical coming in that direction. Right? For God so loved the world. 1 John (coughs) 3.16 says this. This is how we know that what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, connecting to John 3.16. And what then, so that's the vertical, and then we go horizontally, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Now, I love that, that vertical dimension, but please don't ask me to do the second one, that to, to, to apply that personally to us. Don't do that, Paul. I'm not doing it. It's in the Bible. That's what John is telling us. Now, this verse is so easily, too easily ignored. I think most of us will be willing to lay down our lives for our family. Uh, Fathers would, I I think, most fathers here will be willing to lay down their lives for their their wives and, and for their children, their grandchildren, if it ever came to be. but for our brothers and sisters in church? Seriously? Come on, man. I can see some people walking out very soon. (laughs) Asking a lot, isn't it? But isn't this a family as well? Just yesterday at the men's conference, um, we've, we heard the story of um, how a pastor, Steve Tuck, uh, Steve Tuck, um, just he's a pastor of Carlton Cogra Baptist Church, and um, who just happens to be the grandson of one of the faithful, very faithful members of my previous church in Matraville. Uh, Ted Tuck, a very faithful man, how he gave one of his kidneys to a former church member. He actually gave, and they had the whole story there of how this, 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 this church member was on a dialysis machine for 10 hours a day and his condition was getting worse and worse. Um, an, an Indian fellow uh, who came using and serving Christ, and uh, he heard about his condition, how he was getting worse, and he, he, he felt in his heart God telling him, look. And it's not like you can come to someone and says, uh, Duncan, can I have your kidney, please? You know, it's not like somebody comes up and says, you know. It's, it's, you see, it has to be offered. And so what this pastor did is he actually offered and says, look, I'm willing to give you, um, I'm, I'm willing to do this. What, you know, what blood type, what blood type, it was matching, it was brought together. What, what brought them together was for was Christ, but then they were brought together through this sacrament. Just think about it. Just think about it. Obviously he had to tell his family, and that was a bit of a shock his wife and his 13-year-old daughter apparently struggled with it a bit. 
There's a reason why we have two kidneys. It's not like, oh, I have a spare one. Yeah, who wants one? You know, that type of thing. It's, 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 it's pretty serious stuff, right? It's not like donating blood and then, you know, your blood reproduces and, and we have it again. And as someone said yesterday, it's not like lending your car and can I have my kidney back now, please, now that you're better? It's, it's pretty serious. And that was just, uh, they actually quoted this verse, 1 John 3.16, what it means. And I, and I, I, I looked at him and, um, and I said, well, I think that's something exactly that his grandfather would have done as well because I knew him. Personally. It's good, isn't it? And I think sometimes the, the Christian input jumps the sons and, and, his, and comes alive in the grandchildren, isn't it? Isn't that what sometimes happens? <laughs> so grandparents, don't be disappointed, all right? That, that the love of God... Um, it's not something that is, that is inherited, but certainly the example and, and the wonderful teaching and others of your grandparents is something that's in wow. And it comes alive. And we just don't know how this works. But God does. He knows how it works. So, hopefully by now we understand that this new commandment is not merely a, a, another commandment to love our fellow man. It requires more than more from us than having just a natural love that even non-believers have when they donate stuff, when there are philanthropic uh, and they give a lot of money, some of them. All human beings, despite their fallen state, are capable of showing ordinary love and care for the needy, for the impoverished. But if all that we do as Christians is merely to emulate this love, then we will be no different from unbelievers who love one another. The love that is required of us in the new commandment is sacrificial. It is meant to hurt. Give until it hurts, they say. That is why Jesus called it a new commandment. Thirdly, a powerful witness. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. A powerful witness. Now, I'm going to assume that you want your unbelieving friends to know that you are, in fact, a disciple of Christ, that you're not one of these camouflaged Christians who just wants to you know, play hide and seek, just making sure that nobody knows that I am actually a follower of Jesus. Now, if, if, you don't want your, if you don't want unbelievers to know that you're a Christian and if you want them to, you know, to, to think that you are one of them, then, then you have a problem. You'll have a crisis, similar to Peter's denial when they ask you, are you here? No. Are you a follower of Jesus? No. No. Three times. He denied knowing Jesus, even though just a couple of hours before he'd affirmed, I'll do anything for you, Lord.
thing is, if you do not confess Christ before men, what happens? He will not confess you before the Father. And you're going to hear those words, get away from me, evildoers, I don't know you. The other words, you don't want to hear that exactly. How will unbelievers know if you're a Christian or not? Well, I have a T-shirt that says I'm a Christian. Um, Does that work? I have a cross hanging around my neck or I have a bumper sticker in my car. That's how people will know I'm a Christian. Is that what we read here? You see, the kind of love that the first century Christians became known for was something that was totally out of this world. Uh, Tertullian, who was an early church father um, towards the end of the second century, described how the pagans, even though they hated the Christians, they persecuted them. They admired one thing about the believers. This is what they said of them, uh, according to Tertullian. He says, Behold how these Christians love one another. Behold. Aren't you amazed by how they love each other? And so that became this, this, uh, this attraction. We want that because I'm not loved. I want to be part of a community of love. I want some of that. And that's how the, the Christian church grew from 12 disciples and, and more in the early church and, and the 3,000 and it kept growing and growing. And the promise of Jesus was fulfilled. This is how they will know if you love one another. And, and in the book of Acts, chapter 2, verse 44 to 47, it says, And all that believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and parted them all to all men as every man had need. And they continued daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favour with all the people. And what happened? And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. Okay, that was then, that's 2,000 years ago. When the, you know, we're in uh, 2019 now. Can't possibly happen now, can it? The story of Missy, Missy was her name, happened in America. Missy asked God for help. She, she, um, she had a new job at a factory and she was determined to let her light shine for Jesus. But as soon as she met Louise, her work partner, she knew it wasn't going to be easy. Louise, you see, was defensive, crude, ridiculed everything Missy did. Even Missy tried to befriend her and tell her about Jesus. She was rejected. Louise said, I tried that. It didn't work. Hold on. It was in America. I'm putting it in an Aussie accent so you can translate yeah, try that. Didn't work, eh? So Missy asked uh, 
God for help. She read this verse. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you. So Missy kept trying to show love, but all she meant was hardness. And after a particularly rough day, Missy opened her Bible and cried out to God. Again, her eyes fell on John 13.34. But I don't even like her, she complained to God. One day, I don't know how long the time passed, one day Louise sat beside Missy, Louise now came and sat beside Missy at, at, during the break and said, you're the only person who cares. And then she brought out a story of heartache and trouble and Missy put her arms around her and they became friends. Later on, Louise attended church with Missy and after a struggle, gave her life to Jesus. It's a true story with a happy ending. Uh, And maybe you're there now uh, in your workplace, your neighbourhood, and and you still can't see the happy ending. But leave that to God. And even though we have to leave the results to God, don't we? But we have to follow his commands to let our light shine. And how does it happen? Well, God's enabling, the last point, God's enabling. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I'm going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. And Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow now? I will, I will do anything. I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? Very true, I tell you, that before the cock crows, you will disown me three times. Now this, it just sounds impossible, doesn't it? We've spoken about the love between brethren and gave the example of donating organs to one another. It sounds impossible to achieve, doesn't it? Maybe you are determined to love your brethren as Christ has loved you, that's great. But despite your sincerity, you are still going to come up short. Well, Paul, you're not very, being very encouraging now, are you? You're saying, I can't do it. Well, on your own you can't. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. The point is that without God's enablement, you will not be able to love as Jesus loved. It's just not going to happen. It is beyond your human capability to love like Jesus did. This is why you need the Holy Spirit. Look at what happened to Simon Peter. He was very confident about his love for Jesus. And when he said, I will lay down my life for you. I will do anything. Peter is so sure of himself. And to use a pun, a bad pun, he he was a little too cocky. But when he came to the crunch, his fear got the better of him and he denied him three times. But that wasn't the end of the story with Peter, was it? Like Judas went and took, Judas felt remorse and 
took actions, you know. He never waited for the resurrection. He feels so bad, he went and hung himself. Peter. Peter was there. Jesus sought him. And uh, at the end of the book, that we have that, that confirmation that Peter will indeed follow him. The shame was still there, but it was slowly being washed away by the love of Jesus. Do you love me, Peter? Three times. Do you love me? Do you love me? It's challenging, isn't it? It gets to the core. It's, it's pulling his, it's massaging his heart, isn't it? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. What changed from the denial? It was the love of Christ. It was the enablement, the Holy Spirit. That's what made the difference. That's what made the difference when Peter got up in Acts chapter 2 and preached an amazing sermon from Peter the knucklehead and you're saying, are you kidding me? What happened? And then they found out that, then they realised that they had been with Jesus. It was the Holy Spirit. Thousands of people gave their lives to Christ from a coward to a courageous soldier for Christ. If you're a child of God, you have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. This is not something that I'm assuming. This is a promise of God. Um, This is what he says. So, you have to know that you've got to be a a child of Christ to have the Holy Spirit in you. Surrender your life to Christ and the Holy Spirit is in you. The Holy Spirit begins to work in your life. This, this transformation happens. For some of us, it's slower than at other people. It you know, happens straight away. For others, it's a slow burn, a slow cook. But it will happen. That is the promise of God. And you can't do it on your own. But with him, the word of God says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And that is his promise. Amen.